Okay, Fixoplasm episode 102, The Nomad of the Time Streams by Michael Moorcock. So this is the sixth volume in the Tale of the Eternal Champion, published by Millennium in the early 90s, and it covers the exploits of Captain Oswald Bastable, the, uh, the titular Nomad of the Time Streams, although not the only one, it should be noted. Now, this episode follows hot on the heels of the Luther Arkwright episode, and there are some obvious comparisons to be drawn with Brian Talbot's work. Not only do we have a character who crosses into different timelines on Earth and experiences many different varieties of war, we also have the themes of geopolitics and the evils of imperialism. On the other hand, as noted in the last episode, where Luther Arkwright is in control of his destination, Bastable, like other Eternal Champions, has no such control, and he's buffeted by the winds of space-time through a number of alternate Earths. Now, as I've been doing for the whole of this series, I'll be discussing not only the fiction, but also the presentation of this volume, including the cover, and Moorcock's forward, and then its place in the sequence as a whole. So I'd better start with the cover. Now, the last four volumes had covers by Yoshitaka Amano, but this volume's cover is by Mark Reeve, who also did Von Beck. Now, if you look at how the artist's contributions are divided through the series, Yoshitaka Amano gets all the fantasy stuff, um, except for the Elric series, and Mark Reeve gets the alternative world, historical, future stuff, like um, Jerry Cornelius, Von Beck, and Dancers at the End of Time. And this cover shows Bastable in a military uniform with a big car coat over the top against a backdrop of a military airship and this fantastic future architecture. And I wasn't keen on it at first, but I've since warmed to it. The composition's pretty good, I think, and it gives a good impression of both the military and the imperialist themes of the book. Okay, so moving on, as we open it, the first piece of writing is the foreword. So, Moorcock opens this with a note of his admiration for Inesbit, author of Five Children in It, amongst other stories, um, as well as the creator of the original Oswald Bastable. Now, it's my understanding that Moorcock wasn't trying to create a sequel uh, to Nesbitt's stories, but connect with the themes of her age, her Fabian credentials, and the imperialist attitudes of the time. And if you're a fan of wizardry and wild romance... You'll probably notice a lot of the same energy in this passage where Moorcock sets out his position that the two poles of 21st century politics may not be socialism and capitalism, but paternalism against democracy. So here's a quote. Paternalism and centralism, the bane of capitalist as well as socialist politics, are for me the permanent enemy of democracy. It was my wariness of paternalism, especially as it is these days applied, which inspired this sequence. Paternalism and its associated centralism still deeply infect much of our modern political thinking. Apart from Prince Kropotkin, that most kindly of anarchist intellectuals, few of the great thinkers and artists of Wells' day, including Wells, perceived or wished to examine what Rosa Luxemburg was to perceive, and for which she was attacked with brutal rhetoric by much of the orthodox left, that the social solutions, however well meant, however they hoped to achieve the millennium, to give self-respect to minorities and the poor, were always doomed while they kept their prescriptions. Still later, Orwell was attacked by the left for pointing this out and, most recently, Andrea Dworkin has received similar criticism for refusing to accept the consensual 
easier view. And Moorcock also comments on his love of pre-1914 authors in this final paragraph. These three simple stories attempted to explore some of the ideas, especially about imperialism and racialism, which I have explored in different ways in my Jerry Cornelius and Colonel Piat books. The sequence is also my homage to the not-quite-forgotten writers of pre-1914 Britain, whose humanity, curiosity and urgent sense of justice make their work as relevant and as entertaining to our time as it was to theirs, and is dedicated with respect to W. Pet Ridge, author of Maud Emily, and to Pet, his son, whose interest in these books will probably have less to do with their didacticism than with their aeronautical credibility. Yours, Michael Moorcock. And then there's also a postscript where he notes that the third book, The Steel Sar, has been revised for this collection. So, without further ado, on to the synopsis. Now, before we get into the books themselves, it's worth mentioning the framing device for each story, where Moorcock's own grandfather, by chance, encounters Bastable on Roe Island in 1903. Bastable has just been kicked off a ship that he's been staying away on, and he's a confessed eater of opium. Moorcock takes him in and tidies him up, and, and the story itself is Bastable's account of his travels as narrated to Moorcock over three days. And I don't know if that's an allusion to Moorcock's own writing process, uh, where you know he spent three days drinking whiskey and writing, and handing the pages to uh, whoever was editing what he'd just written. Well, who knows? Anyway, at the end of the first book, Bastable vanishes and Moorcock is left to wonder if he'll make contact with Bastable again. Then, in the second book, Moorcock is seeking out the Valley of the Morning that Bastable previously described to him, and he encounters Mrs. Una Person and finds a manuscript left for him by Bastable recounting the second adventure. Then, in the third and final novel, um, this opens with our Michael Moorcock in 1980, receiving the last manuscript and meeting Unipasson himself. Now, this third book was published in 1981, and the foreword makes reference to other appearances of Bastable in The Dances of the End of Time, which Moorcock admits as highly speculative. And since we're about to get to The Dances at the End of Time in the next volume, yeah, this is a nice little taster for the reader. So the first book, The Warlord of the Air, as narrated by Bastable to Moorcock's grandfather in 1903, uh, concerns Bastable's excursions into a 1973 where aerial power through airships not only dictates commercial interests, it also allows the various larger powers, including Britain, Japan and Russia, to carve up and subjugate other nations. But the story starts in 1902, in supposedly our 1902, or a different 1902, where Bastable is a captain of the 53rd Lancers in India. And his mission to Kumbhalari sees him cross paths with the priest Sharan Kang at the Temple of the Future Buddha in Tekobenga, where he's drugged and somehow transitions through time in the catacombs of the temple. And I really enjoyed that scene, by the way. So he emerges to find the city of Tekubenga in ruin following an earthquake. He's then rescued by a ship of the Royal Indian Air Service, where he learns of the state of the world in 1973, and eventually signs on in the Special Air Police, having explained his mental state as um, partial amnesia. And he ends up serving on the airship the Locative, which is, by the way, the name of the ship in 1877 that Joseph Conrad served on. 
Um, in fact, actually, whilst we're talking about cultural references, there are a number of personalities basketball meets along the way, including a Lieutenant Michael Jagger, a Major Enoch Powell, and uh, Rough Rider Ronnie Reagan, who at the time of writing would have been Governor of California. Uh, Reagan is this thoroughly revolting man. He's this self-important leader of his scout troop who um, objects strongly to sharing the dining space of the locative with non-whites. Um, and eventually his disruptions cause the skipper to break his leg and be grounded, never to fly again, for which Bastable cannot forgive Reagan, and eventually he nearly beats Reagan to death in the dining room, which leads to his discharge from the service. But no sooner is he discharged that he's given a new opportunity to fly with this mysterious Polish skipper called Captain Kozniowski, um, who he's introduced to by a foppish anarchist called Cornelius Dempsey, although... Dempsey and Kozanowski's political sympathies aren't known until the airship is underway. At this point, Bastable finds out that they're carrying two dangerous passengers, the, um, the revolutionary Count Rudolf Don Beck and Mrs. Una Poisson, his companion and the daughter of the captain. So Bastable is appalled that the ship is conveying people who he deems terrorists. He's very much of the view that the imperial state is good and India under colonial rule is better off and socialism is evil. A lot of the later conversations are discussions around this position and um, slowly Bastable's eyes are opened to the evil done by the colonial nations, in particular Russia and Japan in China. Now, the airship is then commandeered, um, oh, well, it's taken by force, by the notorious O.T. Shaw, who's leader of the revolutionaries of the City of the Dawn, and dedicated to China's liberation from foreign colonial powers. And as well as commandeering airships, including Bastable's old ship, the Locatif, and outfitting them with special recoilless guns, Shaw has heavier-than-air aircraft, which, in this reality, are, they're assumed just to be sort of not possible, but nevertheless they've developed heavier-than-air aircraft and also an atomic bomb. Uh, and the City of the Dawn itself is a technologically advanced state with, um, you know, doors that, sliding doors that go whoosh and, uh, and other futuristic things. Um, anyway, eventually the characters make their stand against the nations of Russia, Japan, Britain... France and the new United States. And, and Bastable remarks on the attitudes of the airships that bear down the city, these five nations of, of airships just planning to bomb the city of the dawn into oblivion. You know, the, the way that the French tricolore and the American icon of liberty are kind of betrayed by the imperialist actions of those nations. Um, but in any case, all of these airships are destroyed. You know, the, the little heavier-than-air aircraft are way too fast for the big ships to actually shoot at and um, all of these little aircraft bring them down um, and there's also a notable point at the end of the conflict where the the really desperate allies send in um, the very first airship which rescued Bastable at Tekubenga um, and try to bomb the city by stealth basically it gets sent in under no power so it doesn't make any noise and it just drifts in on the wind and their plan is to bomb the um, the sheds with the vehicles and uh, and secret weapons that the city has but this gets shot down anyway um, and then we're treated to Bastable confronting Major Enoch Powell who survives the air crash uh, and has a, a memorable exchange with Bastable where he espouses the kind of views that you would expect this character to espouse. 
anyway, once the battle is won, the final action is taken. Um, so Shaw has been developing the bomb in secret, and they now intend to deploy it against the Allies' airfield, the Allies being the five nations that attacked them, Russia, Japan, Britain, France, United States. So they intend to deploy it against the airfield near Hiroshima. Yeah, you can see where this is going. Um, our protagonists are expecting the blast to be devastating, but um, they aren't expecting it to be so great that it consumes the aircraft as well. Um, and at which point uh, Bastable has one final thought. There's a blinding flash of light, and Bastable is somehow flung into the time streams again. And there ends the first book. Then we have the second book, The Land Leviathan. And this book begins with a lengthy prologue where Moorcock's grandfather details his journey to find the Valley of the Morning. Having sat on the information from uh, Bastable for some years and considered getting it published and being written off by many publishers as a, an eccentric and a crank. Um, so this is quite a, actually a lengthy prologue and it's a really entertaining piece of travelogue in which he details travelling through China in... Uh, 1910, I think, which is in the early stages of the 1911 revolution, I believe. So it's kind of it's quite dangerous. Um, there's lots of army mobilisation where he has to uh, he relies on a local contact to help him steer him through, um, encountering local warlords and uh, various violent situations, in which he meets Una Poisson in the company of an unidentified army with an eight-pointed circular star in their armbands, which, you know, wink, wink. Um, and after a night discussing the nature of the time streams with Una, he awakes to find the camp deserted and a second manuscript from Captain Bastable waiting for him, and that forms the body of the second book, which he plans to publish. So The Land Leviathan opens with Bastable explaining his sudden absence from Roe Island and his return to Tekubenga to reconnect with the 1903 he remembers. And despite being separated from the city by a chasm, he finds some ancient and man-made tunnels that take him under the chasm and into the temple of the future Buddha again, where, once again, he's transported to an alternate timeline, uh, where he initially he thinks he's back home, as he's always thought of the 1903 where he met Moorcock to not quite be his own timeline. But unfortunately, he's proven wrong, as he's shown a world fallen into anarchy with the Middle Eastern Arabian Alliance and um, the African armies of the Black Attila being the major superpowers or the the forces that are taking control. Um, and Britain itself has been destroyed by plague bombs, you know, at least in the south of England. Um, so through a series of encounters in which he rescues Unipasson from the barbarians of uh, East Grimstead. He then reconnects with Captain Kosnowski in the Outer Hebrides. So it's it's not the Captain Kosnowski from the first book. For one, th for one thing, it's, um, the relative ages of Una Poisson and, and the Captain are wrong. But the Captain uh, commands a submarine in this case. Um, so he, recon he reconnects with Captain Kosnowski, having previously been rescued by him on a, uh, on a ship that was destroyed. Um, and then becomes part of the captain's uh, submarine crew after being picked up in the Outer Hebrides. And for a while, he's a privateer. But um, as the pickings on the open seas become slimmer, 
Um, basically, people are fighting each other for what little fuel there is remaining in the world, um, and uh, and that's exactly what the what the privateer, the, the submarine, is doing. Although um, it has some scruples that it doesn't attack um, unarmed vessels, for example. Um, anyway, the pickings become slimmer, so they realise they need to ally with a major power for their continued survival. And obviously this post-apocalyptic model of scavenging resources from each other and, and isn't sustainable. So this moves the protagonists to establish themselves in Bantustan, which is South Africa in this world. This version is a utopia overseen by none other than Gandhi. Uh, it's one where the Boer War and apartheid never happened, and as a result the nation is a cosmopolitan state and it's also technologically advanced. Um, you know, Bastable says that it's as advanced over 1973's London as that city was advanced over the London of his own timeline in the early 1900s. And I, I guess the idea is it's, it's another technologically advanced state like the City of the Dawn was in the first book. So here once again, um, Bastable is involved in geopolitics and, and the Black Attila of the United African States, a man called Cicero Hood, visits Bantustan with none other than Mrs. Una Person in, in, as his companion. And Bastable attends a state event and expresses his anger at Hood's inhumane treatment of the innocents among the white races, since his armies have now subjugated much of Europe and other nations. And his apparent lack of mercy towards those nations he's conquered is widely known. So it's kind of a surprise that Bastable is then offered employment by Hood in his army under the red and black flag of the Black Attila. Now, he learns that Hood's reputation is not wholly true, but it's been cultivated partly because it tends towards bloodless resolutions from enemies who believe the legends. Um, actually, Hood's treatment of subjugated countries is humane and mostly fair. Now, the second half of the book concerns the invasion of the United States, and in particular Washington, and several battles are detailed where the American forces clash with Hood's and Bastable is right in the middle of the action at each stage. But um, he loses his stomach for the conflict, and fearing the worst, Bastable deserts after the revealing of the Land Leviathan, which is this massive ziggurat armed with guns all over it, designed to move across the land and destroy whole cities. And um, he chooses to desert with the aim of warning the white American side. And briefly, Bastable involves himself with the American side where he discovers, well, just how unpleasant that side is. And as a result, his defection is short-lived before he comes to the defence of the black American slaves, some of whom turn out actually to be Hood's agents. As a result, Washington is sacked, the white leaders are executed, and the White House is blown apart by the Land Leviathan. Um... Notably, the president is a grotesque figure called Beasley, and one of his subordinates is Joe Kennedy. Now, that, that's pretty much the end of the narrative. You know, once again, a lot of the content is in the dialogue around what is acceptable behaviour in the service of achieving change. So then finally, we have The Steel Tsar, which features a prologue by um, our Michael Moorcock, in which... He meets, in 1980, he meets um, Mrs. Una Person and receives another memoir from Bastable. And importantly, the prologue mentions things like the Morphale effect, which dictates that most time travellers may only move forward 
with the exception of the League of Temporal Adventurers, who can move backwards or to alternate timelines. And Bastable is now one of the League's members. And this is foreshadowing some information in the story itself. So then, in Bastable's narrative, in his recounting, Bastable has again travelled in time, and this time to a world where the Bolshevik Revolution never happened. So initially he escapes the invasion of Singapore by the Japanese, and winds up on Roe Island, where he meets new versions of familiar characters, uh, including another version of Cornelius Dempsey, who is an anarchist, and a derelict opium eater. Um, there's also a character called Lieutenant Begg, there's Nye, there's Dr. Hera, and others, some of which will, will not really be familiar to you if you've only read these in the chronological order I've been reading them in this sequence, but these are names which repeat in other fiction by Moorcock. Anyway, the first act is on Roe Island, again, a different Roe Island, obviously, and it runs at a fairly slow pace where Bastable wanders around the island, interacting with other characters. And this really put me in mind of some of uh, J.G. Ballard's fiction um, or Patricia Highsmith's Tremor of Forgery or um, John Brunner's The Squares of the City with this, you know, this displaced white man coming to terms with the local intrigue. And a lot of the characters are basically flotsam who found themselves on the island. And there's an incongruous local hotel, which is the usual um, you know, pathetic bastion of Western culture where the Westerners all gravitate and, uh, and drink gin and, and you know, moan about their, their lot. Bastable manages to radio for help from Darwin eventually and expects to be rescued in a day or so. But the airship that comes is Japanese military and their appearance catalyzes an uprising of the native Malay and Chinese and he becomes a prisoner of war. It's not long, though, before Bastable escapes and joins up with the Russian Air Service, again under Captain Kosnowski. But the mission is not to oppose the Japanese, but rather to settle domestic politics and the threat posed by um, Cossack revolutionaries under Joseph Vissarionovich Jugashvili, the Steel Tsar. After a pretty exciting aerial battle, uh, Bastable's airship is captured by black unmarked enemy ships who are fighting on the side of the revolutionaries, and he's brought into the company of the Steel Tsar, who is accompanied by none other than Mrs. Unabosson and Cornelius Dempsey, who we thought died in the violent uprising on Roe Island, but obviously not. Jukashvili has two pieces of technology available to him. The first one is an automaton, which is about two and a half times the height of a normal man, and in the likeness of his own body and helmet. So he's called the Steel Tsar because supposedly he's disfigured, and he wears this ridiculous helmet, which has got this uh, bronzed, mustachioed face on it. And then, of course, the Steel Tsar itself, this automaton, is a duplicate of that. Um... And then there's also a number of atomic bombs developed by Professor Marek. Now, the Ukrainian anarchist Makhno um, has, uh, was in command of the black airships, and, but following a dispute with Jugasvili, uh, has removed his military support. And in retaliation, Jugasvili plans to bomb Makhno's camp. So here in the final chapters, we actually discover that it was Dempsey, not Bastable in this world, that bombed the airfields near Hiroshima uh, with the first atomic bomb, and that act started the war between Japan and Britain. Um, we also meet another version of Max von Beck, 
who calls himself, in this case, Monsieur Zenith. And at the climax, we learn more about the function of the League of Temporal Adventures as well in preserving order and therefore peace throughout the multiverse, as well as their methods in travelling, which involves some kind of um, linguistic magic. And Bastable awakens to the notion of multiple versions of himself, as well as Von Beck and Una Passon and other characters. And we also understand that the instability of one zone of the multiverse can infect others, which is one of the outcomes of the bombing of Hiroshima. In the end, the bombs are detonated in a safe zone because of um, Cornelius Dempsey's bravery. Uh, Steel Sar is no more, and Bastable is recruited into the League to make further appearances in Moorcock's multiverse. So that's the synopsis of the trilogy. Um, and as always, I have a few remarks. Um, the first one of which is, previously we've mostly experienced the epic fantasy end of Moorcock's writing, but we're sailing to Utopia, and now this volume we're moving towards the new wave SF end. And the fantasy sagas are also about eternal war, but because they're set in secondary worlds, they're more allegorical. In this volume, that motif gets applied to alternate primary worlds, and in particular because we have allusions to a number of historical people and political situations, it addresses the politics of those situations more directly. And also, there's something about the first-person narration which makes the context um, more personal, I think. So, as I said, uh, as I read these, I also felt a strong connection with the likes of Ballard and Christopher Priest, uh, Patricia Highsmith. Um, and that's probably why I enjoyed these a lot more this time round, because I really didn't get them as much the first time I read them in, in the 90s. Um, and once again, I go back to Moorcock's advice to read widely and to stop reading fantasy if you want to engineer fantasy plot. Um, I think that's that, that's a good piece of advice. Anyway, I think there are two themes that are worth discussing. And the first is the nature of temporal adventurers as described. And um, as I said, this only really becomes explicit in the third book where Unipasson explains the Morphale effect to Moorcock. And towards the end of the book, Bastable is introduced to the idea of the League of Temporal Adventurers. But here's, I think this is the summary of what they are. First of all, the League exists to oppose chaos and support peaceful organisations throughout alternative timelines, or as they call them, zones. So it fits into the law versus chaos by another name. Uh, also, there are some safe zones. So there are some alternate worlds which are you know, in crisis. But there are others that are perfectly peaceful and the League's agents recuperate there from time to time. You know, and that, that kind of also hints at the stresses of time travel and going on these missions. The Morphale effect, which we mentioned a couple of times, means most people only travel forward in time. But the League's members can travel backwards and also hop to different alternatives. Uh, another point is Bastable wonders if the League's members and possibly all the alternative versions of characters he meets are subject, are subject to some kind of partial amnesia which makes it difficult for them to view the whole multiverse holistically. Um, I think this is more his theory rather than a hard and fast rule but it does interest me a lot um, that you can have the same characters turn up in different worlds and they are the same characters, but they're really the same acting troupe taking on different roles, depending on the alternate timeline they're in. 
One example that suggests that there is some kind of amnesia uh, is Cornelius Dempsey because um, it's strongly implied he's a member of the League um, and therefore he is unique and exists in several timelines. But he clearly has a, well, probably has no recollection of being in the first book. I'm not sure whether he is supposed to be just um, just another version of himself or if he is supposed to be a temporal adventurer who's partially forgotten his previous existence. Anyway, what this also means, I guess, is there's no real chronological continuity of characters if they're either alternate versions of themselves or they have some kind of amnesia. You know, they just are simultaneously in all the different versions of themselves in all the different realities. Um, and the last thing is, uh, of course, the, the catastrophic events in one zone can actually affect other zones. Um, one example being the bombing of Hiroshima. And in the previous episode of the podcast, um, I made the obvious comparison between Moorcock and Brian Talbot's Luther Arkwright. So, both of those have the themes of war echoing through various alternatives to the multiverse, and both are about striving for order over chaos. And most significantly, they both focus on social and political structures, in particular those of dictators and empire builders. Um, and of course, in Arkwright, the manipulation of the various regimes is all part of the disruptor's grand plan. But in Bastable's world, or in Bastable's multiverse, it's a natural event which has to be opposed by the temporal adventurers who are pretty much painting the fourth bridge of the multiverse. You know, there's entropy is everywhere and the natural state is to degenerate into chaos and therefore the agents just exist to paper over the cracks as quickly as they can. Also, uh, the good guys have an objective view of the multiverse and a plan which they're bringing to conclusion in Luther Arkwright. Um, but there is no time travel in Luther Arkwright. There's just a pattern of comparative histories. So it's a lot looser in the Moorcox version of the multiverse if you're going to talk about the same characters traveling through different alternative Earths and getting involved in um, dangerous political situations and averting the onset of chaos. So I was thinking about the structure of these temporal adventurers for role-playing and it made me think of the Amazing Engine role-playing game, which was, I think it was like late 90s. Um, the conceit there was that you could play versions of the same character in multiple different genres and realities. Um, and as well as this, I also thought about the Invisibles in, in episode 100 and their organisation into cells with rotating elemental roles. So you could mash those two concepts together for a series of one-off games with each player playing their character, playing different roles in conflicts. You know, Maybe you rotate the roles in, in different organisational structures so that um, the same character appears in a different narrative as a hero one week and a villain the next week, and then, then, you know, passes the baton on. And you might not have a chronological continuity in that game, um, but you could plausibly say that events from one game influence another world in the way that big things happening, like um, the, the bombing of Hiroshima rippling through the multiverse, 
causes um, a cascade effect into other worlds. So you could have some kind of continuity and um, a metagame effect of, uh, let's say, in the previous session, uh, something something important blew up and um, changed the course of human history. The ripples of those could still be applied to the next game or the next scenario that comes along. Um, so I think you could get some kind of uh, meta continuity there, if you know what I mean. A friend of mine thought about a game where you could play in a different apocalypse each week, and and I think you know that's the kind of format I'm kind of imagining. Um, because the certainty that you have is, you know, th things might change, the scenario might change, but there are, are certainties there. The certainties are each person will be playing a version of their chosen character, and the scenario always ends with the end of the world, which would be quite fun. All right, um, so moving on, I guess I should talk about the other significant theme, which is political. Um in particular, the politics surrounding conquest and escalating warfare. And as I said earlier, the fantasy novels are every bit as much about war, but they're, you know, they're, they're fables. Um, here, because the politics have a point of reference in our world, Moorcock has a bit more latitude to explore the politics of his characters, and in particular, how opinions can be changed. So Bastogl is quite self-aware, actually, um, and he does sense that his demeanour makes him appear priggish, but he's also quite flawed in the way that he clings to his imperial attitudes. You know, how he assumes that the nations colonised by Britain are the better for it. He has more than one internal monologue where he questions his own motives and, um, you know, whether he's prepared to abandon his previously held principles um, and uh, embrace the, the views of other people like, you know, the socialists and anarchists that he meets. And, and there's a lot of political argument throughout the books where the various characters set out their positions. There's very little black and white, you know, which makes it interesting. Um, and mostly this made me think of how you might convey political opinions of a player character or NPC. Um, in particular, I was thinking about this in the first book. So recall that Bastable signs on with Kosnowski in the airship after being discharged from the Special Air Police. And then he learns that he's apparently transporting radicals and terrorists. And then the ship gets taken over by Shaw, who is a, who's more extreme than uh, Kosnowski and Unipasson and Von Beck. So you've kind of got this sliding scale of what you would or would not do to achieve change. Um, although, of course, I, I guess with sliding scales, those suggest a moral absolute. Um... It put me in mind of the humanity system in Vampire, and, and that's quite flawed. Um, it doesn't really take into account context. Um, you, know, you, you just you, you do the thing, where you, you either transgress or you don't, and then you make a saving throw to avoid losing humanity. Um, but having a sort of sliding scale of what you would or would not be prepared to do might be a useful tool if you wanted to introduce a sort of uh, a political situation. Anyway, um, a lot of the book is devoted to talking about the situation and people's motivations, and it's kind of tricky to use that as a lever for an action RPG. Um, I, I suppose it always comes down to what you approve or disapprove of, and what you're prepared to do or not. Um, and 
role-playing tools can be kind of reductive, but I think actually the humanity model with a bit of tweaking might actually be the best way to tackle something like this. Um, another thing that I noted is that Bastable is actually quite passive in a lot of this. I mean, he has opinions, like say, he verbally opposes people, but doesn't act until somewhere near the climax. Um, so he's quite passive. And I think actually this might be a problem with political plots in role-playing games where events are set in motion and players may be wondering if or how they can influence the politics, you know, the, the big changes, because a lot of role-playing games are focused on small tasks. Uh, then they're about investigations and uh, getting through a dungeon. Um, they they focus on these, a small controllable world. Um, so, and I don't have a strong grasp of politics, you know, and, and I think it's you know, hard enough acting out characters uh, to, to like voice your NPC's political arguments in the game and make those, you know, a, a coherent argument. It's probably going to be a really tall order for me. Um, but I suppose that the political positions in the books always give rise to action. And maybe that's the important thing to bear in mind. And also, um, I'm thinking about Moorcock's forward, where he describes two political poles, you know, the, this paternalism versus democracy. Um, so you could kind of take every character and place them on a line between those two poles and justify that position with their personal beliefs based on the scenario's premise. Um, so, yeah, this might be oversimplifying things, but I think you need to strike a compromise between the nuanced politics and providing a simple action framework. I don't think I can say much more about the politics of this. Um, so I guess the last thing I wanted to say uh, to, to round off this episode, um, I will do as I've done in the previous episodes, is, is talk about this volume's place in the sequence. So in the previous volume, Sailing to Utopia, Moorcock turns away from the fantasy worlds towards science fiction by way of adventure fiction. And I think we have the logical progression to the next stage now that we've started to do that. Um, slightly different ways of viewing the multiverse. So um, break it down, uh, you know, the, in Sailing to Utopia, we had stories like The Ice Schooner, which has resonance with both um, the fantasy books, which we talked about earlier, but also with adventure fiction and fantasy and SF. Um, and then there's The Black Corridor, which is about societal collapse and features recurring characters from Moorcock's more psychedelic fiction, like um, Bishop Beasley. So those appearances are cameos at best. So I kind of feel with Oswald Bastable, we're getting eased into the more fractured and surreal fiction that's coming up, like The Dancers at the End of Time and uh, the Jerry Cornelius novels. And I say eased in because... Bastable's really giving us a very objective and rational view of the role of the temporal adventurers and the nature of the multiversal war. There are, you know, there are little motifs which suggest the higher cosmic powers at play in this, which is a human-scale conflict, you know, like Unipassant's soldiers with the armbands with the eight-pointed star. Um, of course, that, that raises a question about her alliances in general. You know, my, my best guess is she's often allying herself with chaos as a double agent, to put herself at the heart of the conflict in various alternatives. But any, anyway, that's a digression. I think it's a lot easier to decipher 
and view this sequence as a whole and get a sense of what the temporal adventurers are doing than um, the later things like the Jerry Cornelius novels, which are, as I say, more psychedelic, uh, more scattershot, um, more self-contained vignettes. Um, now, to be fair, it, it is a while since I've read those series, and we'll see how that opinion holds up when I come to that volume. But um, this this kind of feels like a sort of a very useful stepping stone between the fantasy fiction into the the more new wave SF stuff. Um, but as I said, it's more objective and, and therefore it's a really useful thing to read at this point in the sequence, which is probably why Mulhock has curated it in this order. So I think that's all I have to say. Thank you very much for listening again. Now, if you like the podcast, uh, please like, share and subscribe, all that stuff. And if you want to support me, you can check out my Patreon, where there is bonus content for supporters. Uh, anyway, music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Until next time, take it easy. Speak to you later. Bye.